our life. We know that these are more than just ink on a page, but really they have divine origin. These are the words that you have chosen to reveal to us, that you've preserved miraculously throughout history. Lord, we're so grateful for the chance to be able to study these things. Let it impact our lives and our hearts this morning, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, our reading plan uh, this past week uh, was beginning in 2 Corinthians. I believe we read chapters 1 to 6, and I have a question for you regarding the books of Corinthians, and I will admit at the outset here that it is a bit of a trick question, so no pressure to answer this. How many letters do you think Paul wrote to the Corinthians? Dave? Three? Okay, yeah, John? Yeah. People are kind of divided as to whether or not it was three or even four, but it is a bit of a trick question in that there are more books to the Corinthians than our Bible contains. And I want to walk you through a, a little bit how we, how we have determined that there are these. I'll go with four books here. I'm borrowing heavily from one of the classes I took in seminary, and the teacher in that class actually titled the books A, B, C, and D. And I think you'll see why in just a second. It gets a little confusing if you go one, two, three, and four in uh, naming the books that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. So just a little bit of background about Corinth. You remember from Acts, I think, 18, Paul arrives in Corinth. Jesus personally appears to him and says, I have many in this city who are going to be my disciples. Go and find them, basically. And Paul spends 18 months in Corinth evangelizing, preaching the gospel. This church is formed under his leadership. Paul speaks in very uh, endearing terms to the church in Corinth. I just looked this morning. He actually says that he is a father to these people. He loves the Corinthian church. We're going to see that a little bit more as we talk about the books that he wrote to them. But I want us to now turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where we can see evidence for where this first book is found. We'll be turning a lot in the first half of Sunday school this morning, so please be ready to look in your Bibles, turn some pages. We might say that Paul, before we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, was maybe like the first remote pastor. He did a lot of correspondence by letters to the church in Corinth rather than going personally and pastoring or shepherding them. He just wrote letters, and we have evidence of this correspondence even in the Corinthians, which we'll see in just a second here. But for our first book or first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we see evidence for it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, where we read this. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Do you see where we can get evidence for a book that existed even before 1 Corinthians? Yeah, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter, almost implying that there was one before this. And, and as the chapter progresses, it seems that Paul is having to write this to offer a clarification. He says in the first letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, and the people of Corinth say, okay, we're not going <laughs> to associate with anyone who is sexually immoral. Unbeliever, believer, we're just cutting it off. And Paul has to clarify here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, what I meant was... Don't associate with a person who calls themselves a Christian and who is sexually immoral. So, so we can see likely what happened 
is that Paul wrote a first letter to the Corinthian church, what we'll call uh, letter A, as 1 Corinthians chapter 5 describes it, and maybe the people replied to Paul's first letter with questions of their own, and I say this because of some other evidences in the text. Uh, turn one page, at least for me it's one page, over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. <coughs> Evidently, the Corinthians wrote Paul a letter. And now he is replying with one of his own. It seems like they have questions about marriage. We see twice in chapter 7, Paul says, now concerning. You can see it again in verse 25. He says, now concerning the betrothed. He's answering a series of questions here. Look at chapter 8. Verse 1, he begins a new section answering their question, saying, now concerning food offered to idols. Turn over to chapter 12. Verse 1, Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts. He has two more of these instances in chapter 16, verses 1 and 12. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints. And goes on to elaborate, verse 12, now concerning our brother Apollos. I say all of this just to demonstrate for you that there was correspondence between Paul and the church in Corinth. There was likely a first letter, even before what we call 1 Corinthians. They replied with a letter of their own. Paul's reply answering their questions is Corinthians B, what we call 1 Corinthians. And then in our reading this week, we actually encountered what is potentially a third letter to the Corinthian church, and that is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Second Corinthians chapter 2. We'll read the first four verses and just trying to understand how we get maybe a third letter that Paul wrote here. He says this in verse 1, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. You can see twice in these four verses, Paul refers to a letter that he wrote to them. In fact, the letter, maybe the contents were kind of severe, as you can see on the screen there, because Paul says, Listen, when I wrote, I wasn't intending to cause you to suffer pain or affliction. I wrote out of anguish of my heart and with many tears. You can see in verse 1, he references this painful visit that he had made to Corinth. And I realize there's a lot of details going on here. And you're probably wondering, what in the world does all of this mean? How does this connect? How are we getting a third letter in addition to, you know, the two that we know about? from this text of scripture? Well, as best as we can determine from the biblical data, I'm gonna to try to answer that question for you here. What is Paul talking about with this severe letter, this painful visit that he had to make? 
at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we have evidence that Paul used Timothy to deliver 1 Corinthians to the Corinthian church. He mentions Timothy. Paul sent him to deliver the letter. Paul didn't hand deliver it. We can gather that maybe the Corinthians responded pretty poorly to 1 Corinthians being delivered to them, or what we call Corinthians B. If you remember, we just read it. It should be pretty fresh in our minds. Paul has some pretty strong words for the Corinthians. He says, you guys are immature in your faith. You've let... Um, like division, run rampant. You guys are spiritually infants. He says about their practice of communion that he is ashamed of their behavior. Paul, Paul rebukes their behavior in Corinthians B, and when Timothy delivers it, maybe they do not respond well at all to those harsh words from Paul, to those necessary words, really. It's a strong rebuke. And so when Paul hears rumors that they are, you know, rebelling or reacting against this thing, he determines, you know what, I have to go talk to these people myself. I cannot communicate these truths uh, via letter. I'm going to go talk to the Corinthians and see if I can't uh, put some of these things at rest here. And so he goes to Corinth, but as verse 1 describes of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it was a painful visit. Maybe he was treated poorly, maybe people called him names, maybe they rebuked his authority. We don't really know other than that Paul says, when I came, it was painful. And he determines, you know what, I am not going to go back to Corinth and be treated like this again. I cannot risk just this church that I love rejecting me even further. So he writes a severe letter to them, encouraging them to repent to restore their relationship with him, to respond to what he had written in Corinthians B and, and come back to unity and all of these things that he had written about. But rather than sending it himself, he sends not Timothy this time, but Titus to deliver this letter. And we can actually kind of follow the story from here. When Paul sends Titus to, to Corinth, to deliver Corinthians C, the severe letter, one that's calling them to repentance. He says, hey, after you deliver this, meet me in Troas, and we'll reconnect here, all right? So that's important, meet me in Troas, because in verse 12 of chapter 2, we read this. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So what do you think Paul is thinking? If he told Titus, hey, deliver the severe letter, meet me in Troas, and he gets to Troas and Titus isn't there, what do you think Paul's thinking? Yikes. What did the Corinthians do to Titus? I already know that there's some unrest between us right now. They rejected Timothy when he delivered the first letter. Now I've sent Titus, and he's not here? Did they respond poorly to this letter as well? Paul, as I said earlier, loves these people. He is a spiritual father to them, and to see some of this division, at least apparently by Titus not being in Troas, has got to be so painful for him. In fact, we're going to read about some of that pain, uh, but notice what the end of verse 13 concludes with. Paul says, so I took leave of them, presumably, obviously, without Titus, and goes on to the next city. This time, it's Macedonia. Turn now to chapter 7. The story continues in chapter 7. 
Paul tells us what happens when he came to Macedonia. Chapter 7, verse 5. For when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear within. You can tell that the troubles that Paul had in Troas have followed him to Macedonia. He describes even these fears that are going within. Likely, where in the world is Titus? How, how did the people of Corinth respond to this severe letter that I wrote them? Notice verse 6. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And what news did Titus bring? Verse 7. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Do you see what happens here? Titus connects with Paul and says, listen, you know that severe letter you wrote the Corinthians? They've repented. They've responded well. They have zeal and mourning. They have come back into a right relationship with the Lord and with you. And can you imagine Paul's joy at hearing this news to these people that he loves so much? He, he articulates his joy in the following verses. He is absolutely thrilled that the church in Corinth responded this way. And one of the things that he is particularly excited about is that the church had encouraged Titus. Titus left thinking, wow, this church is awesome. And Titus comes back and tells Paul, hey, listen, they responded well to the severe letter and Paul is just over the moon. It's awesome for him. He's so glad. And so Corinthians D then would be 2 Corinthians, in which Paul kind of ties up some loose ends. He's heard the good news from Titus that they've responded well to the severe letter, and he just says, hey, here's why I wrote this letter in the first place. Uh, it was not to make you guys feel bad, but really to restore us. He ties up some uh, logistical ends. He had mentioned a, uh, a giving uh, project that he was trying to organize in 1 Corinthians, so he follows up with that in 2 2 Corinthians really is um, Paul's like final correspondence that we have with the church of Corinth in which he is just, again, putting a lid on everything that had been unaddressed so far. I realized that was a lot. I hope that that was not as confusing as maybe I'm thinking it was right now as I even describe it. But I was like this week studying this, just like really excited to kind of see the story that is within the story of the Corinthians here to see like Paul's love for this church that is just so saddened when they are not following Jesus, that uh, is motivated to rebuke these people for their sinful behavior, Paul's joy at seeing them be restored to fellowship with him, to a right relationship with Christ. And I just thought for us, like what an example for us here. Do we love people enough to confront them when necessary? Is the thing that brings us the greatest joy in life to see that they have repented? To see that they have, you know, repurposed and recommitted themselves to following Jesus? Again, I realize that's a lot, but that is more or less the four letters that have been written to the church in Corinth. I did want to address one final question here. You may have thought through all of this. You're saying Paul wrote four letters. We only have two. Are we missing books of the Bible? Should we conclude that perhaps some books are just lost uh, in history that we're just not going to know about? To that, I would say no. If you look at Matthew, uh, you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it for you. Matthew 24, 35 says this. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, 
but my words will not pass away. God has miraculously preserved his word for us, and I think we have to realize that not everything Paul wrote was inspired scripture. Certainly there was letters that he wrote that did not have divine origin. In fact, we could look at these two letters, A and C, as example of that. I think the scriptures actually give us another example of a letter Paul wrote that wasn't inspired. Uh, we see evidence for it in Colossians chapter 4. Paul says this to the Colossian church, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. What Paul is saying to this church is, both of you guys received a letter. When you read it, swap it. However, when we look at our Bibles, we don't see an epistle to the Laodiceans, do we? And so we would conclude that maybe likely what happened here is Paul wrote both of them a letter. Colossians was what we would consider inspired divine origin from God, and the, church that the, the letter that the church in Laodicea got was a good letter, certainly. Paul probably wrote it, but not what would fall in the category of the inspired scriptures. So we can say with certainty what God wants for us to have, he has preserved for us. And there are just some letters, some correspondences back and forth uh, that have, you know, not really withstood the test of time in that respect. Any questions about this? I realized that was a lot. Does the four books more or less make sense? How, how they came to be? Sweet. All right, let's move on to the questions now. Second Corinthians chapter one. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul really out of the gate starts talking a lot about comfort. We might identify it as one of the key words of Corinthians. Uh, we've seen even how Paul himself was comforted by the coming of Titus and finding out that um, the church is doing well in Corinth. We begin our first question in verses 3 to 7 by asking, how is God the Father described here? What are some of the descriptions that you see of God from verses 3 to 7? Kaylee. Yeah, God is described simply as the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. We're reminded here of God's character. Sometimes in the midst of trials, we begin to direct these accusatory thoughts toward God. We think, how could you be good? Why are you letting me go through all these things? I'm suffering. Don't you know this? And Paul just says, hey, God is the Father of mercies. He is the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all of our affliction. And Paul is not speaking hypothetically here about experiencing comfort. Look at verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 for a description of the kind of suffering that he is facing here. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Paul is explaining, or describing rather, some severe affliction here, and yet God came and comforted him in the midst of all of this. Second question, what does Paul intend to do with the comfort that he receives from God? Copy. To comfort others. Yeah, really interesting. More on that in just a minute here, but what in verse 9, what lesson did Paul learn in the midst of his affliction? Brenda. Yes. 
Paul says, I realize that the affliction I'm suffering was intended to make me rely on God, not on myself. So now we come to the application of these questions here. And what are some of the ways that this passage of scripture should impact the way that you view suffering in this life? I feel like Paul's example gives us a really good model for suffering. What can we learn about it? Lisa. Yeah. God is sovereign. We're not exempt from suffering. We should expect to face suffering as a Christian. What else do you think we learn about suffering from this passage of scripture? Bonnie. Yeah, that we learn to rely on God. Brenda? Yeah. Here's one that Cuppy alluded to already. Our suffering is intended, rather the comfort, received, the comfort we receive from our suffering is intended not to be hoarded for ourselves, but to be distributed to others. Right, do you see what Paul is saying here? He says, I have received comforting so that I might pass it on to you guys. And maybe just a practical example of that, maybe as you think about the suffering that you've experienced in your own life, maybe let's say a chronic illness, the intent of the comfort that you have received from suffering day in and day out with this just painful illness that you have is not so that you can have a pity party and say, oh, woe is me, my life is so hard, but so that you can look to someone else who maybe is experiencing something similar and say, listen, here is how God has comforted me in the midst of this. Let me comfort you. I know what it is to experience these things. Let me look past myself and look to others who are suffering in very similar circumstances. I asked this question in my notes, isn't it encouraging to know that our suffering has purpose? Paul is articulating that suffering has purpose. Can you imagine an unbeliever going through some of these things? What do they think? I am just at the whim of my circumstances right now. I got the bad hand in life. I am really unlucky. That's how they view trials and sufferings. A Christian says, a good and sovereign God has allowed these things to happen to me. And he intends for me not just to grow personally from it, but to come alongside other people and help them grow. Moving on now to chapter two, Paul talks about a person in the Corinthian church who has caused them pain. Paul has some pretty specific instructions in verses seven and eight about how to treat this person. What does he say what should our response be? What should the Corinthian church's response be to this person who had caused them pain? Diane? Forgive them and love them. Yes. What a model for us to respond to people that have caused us pain. Sometimes we like to have like a stiff arm approach, like you caused me pain, I'm gonna hold a grudge against you. Paul says, hey, forgive them, love them, welcome them back, treat them as a brother again. And according to verse 11, why does Paul encourage forgiveness? <laughs> Jeff. Yeah, so that we will not be outwitted by Satan. Paul says Satan would love nothing more than for there to be division in the church. When Satan sees division, he rubs his hands together and says, oh, I can do a lot with this. Paul says, forgive this person. We know how Satan works. 
Let's not give him an opportunity to create even further division here. So what practical way then can we combat Satan's attempts to destroy the church? Jeff? Yeah. Exactly. Be aware of some spiritual realities that are going on here. When you have conflict with one another, there is Satan. First Peter describes him as a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. Be aware that there are spiritual forces at work looking to use division to rip our church apart. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath and give no opportunity to the devil. Right? Again, Satan would love for you to go to bed still angry at someone and wake up and bring it back to life again. We have to be aware of how Satan works, the things that he uses to divide our church. Can I encourage you not to let Satan have the upper hand in your life? Are you really going to let division exist between you and someone else and give opportunity to Satan to do whatever he wants? I hope not. Be reconciled to one another. Forgive one another. From 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul begins this chapter by talking about the contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He says the Old Covenant is really, he calls it the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation. It's written on stone. It's temporary. He calls the New Covenant uh, the ministry of righteousness. He says that it is eternal. It's written on human hearts. He makes this awesome comparison between the two covenants here. And kind of building off of the Old Covenant and it having some glory, uh, really enough glory that it made Moses' face shine, so much so that he had to cover it in the Old Testament. Paul transitions from the glory of the Old Covenant to talking about why the Jews can't understand what the Old Testament is talking about. Why is that? Why does Paul say that they just have a, a certain darkness or a cloudiness about the Old Testament? Uh, yeah, Paul gives two reasons. He says their mind is hardened. There is a veil over their hearts. That's why they can't understand the Old Covenant. Uh, look at chapter 4 really quick. Verse 3. We see who is covering and veiling these people's minds and hearts. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Again, Satan is at work here, the God of this world, blinding people to the, the truth. And again, this veil is only removed by God, by the Spirit removing it. So what happens then, question number three, when people behold the glory of the Lord with an unveiled face? We're told something really interesting. There's a phenomenon that happens when you behold God's glory. Copy. Say that again. Okay. You turn to the Lord that's saved. Yes, you are turned into the same image of the one you are beholding. All right. Importantly, number four then of our questions. Where do you think we can see the glory of the Lord today? Tell me. Okay. 
Yeah, where, like, unmistakably can we behold God's glory? In his word. Yeah. So Paul is saying here, when you are confronted with the word of God, you are actually changed into that same image that you are beholding in the word of God. Can I just articulate the importance of being confronted with God's word on a regular basis? We live in a culture in which every single thing you encounter is not morally neutral. It is actively drawing you away from Christ. You are being bombarded with things that are making you anti-God. And so if you are beholding the world, you slowly, over time, are going to be conformed into the image of the world. This is unacceptable for a Christian. We have to regularly be exposing ourselves to the glory of God as revealed in the scriptures. If you want to be more Christ-like, behold Christ. Right? Whether or not you are doing the reading plan with our church, you need to be confronted with the scriptures. The Christian has an obligation to be more like Christ, to be grounded in truth, to fight sin, to do all of these things. In fact, our second question then from Psalm 119 just gives us some significances of God's word for our everyday life. I've just got three passages here from Psalm 119. What does verse 11 teach us about the significance of God's word for everyday life? Hide it in your heart for what reason? Do you remember? So you won't sin against him. Yeah, hide God's word in your heart so you won't sin. Yeah, I think we all know, if you're a believer here, what it is to be confronted with a temptation and then all of a sudden a verse out of nowhere springs into your mind and says, you're really going to lie when the Bible says, no, let, don't let corrupt communication come out of your mouth? You're like, whoa, I don't even remember memorizing that, but the Spirit just brought it to mind right now. I'm at a crossroads. This is what God's word does. How about Psalm 119, 105? What's another benefit of God's word? Hutch. Yeah, it's a light that shows us the right way to go. When we have decisions to make in life, certainly the Bible doesn't say, should I go to this college or that? But it gives us wisdom. It gives us a light to our feet to know what decisions to make. How about verse 165? What does the Bible teach us about the significance of, its own, of the word? There, there's one more thing that it does for us. Bonnie? Yeah, it gives us peace, keeps us from stumbling. Again, being confronted with God's word regularly is a non-negotiable for the believer. We are being just bombarded everywhere. We've got to be confronted with the glory of God in the scriptures to become Christ-like, to fight sin, to make wise decisions, to have peace in our life. Whether or not it's, you know, hearing it Wednesdays and Sundays or sermons throughout the week or reading it, uh, yourself personally, let me encourage you, please, to be confronted with God's word regularly. We have to be seeing the glory of God here and being changed into the same image. Chapter 4. We have a description of some suffering that Paul faced here. I want to read it for you in verses 8 to 10. 
Paul says this about his suffering. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Paul really opens up to us here about some of the stuff that he's been facing in life. But verse 16 kind of describes his attitude for us in the midst of this unfortunate circumstances. What does verse 16 describe about Paul's attitude? How, how does he sound even in the midst of some of these really hard circumstances? Let's just read it together, I guess. So we do not lose heart, verse 16 says. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Paul goes on to describe his present afflictions in verse 17. What two adjectives does he use to describe those afflictions? Joanne. Light and momentary afflictions. Now, how does that strike you? Do your afflictions seem light and momentary? If you came and told me about some problem that is in your life right now, and I said, mm, yeah, it's pretty light, it's brief, you'd be like, that's a little insensitive. I don't think you totally understand like the depth of suffering that I'm going through. Paul's going to get us to how we can say that about sufferings, but that comes in the third question. In contrast, how is the future described? What does Paul say about the future? Yeah, Will. It is an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. A thousand years from now, when we are in the presence of our Savior, we're going to look back on this life and say, you know what? Our suffering was pretty light, wasn't it? Life was pretty momentary. What does this passage teach us about how to think and respond to difficult circumstances in life? How can we apply this when we're going through something difficult and it feels anything but light and momentary? What do we remind ourselves? Jeff. Yeah, totally. Keep eternity in perspective. Any other thoughts? Bonnie? Yeah, look at the big picture. Temi? Yeah, I think you captured pretty well what verse 18 describes if you want to look at it. Chapter 4, verse 18. We look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We are reminded here that a Christian has a totally different perspective on life than an unbeliever. An unbeliever looks at their life and says, I have 80 years to enjoy this life. So live it to the fullest. And Paul says, the things of this life are transient. A Christian then needs to look toward things that are eternal. The perpetual battle that believers have to face is not to get sucked into the, into the world's way of thinking about things. We spend a lot of our time, a lot of our resources, a lot of our energy spent on things that Paul would describe as transient. 
We become experts at things that don't really matter all that much for eternity. We might even find ourselves competing with unbelievers to have the best transient things. And Paul says, what are you doing? Look for things that are eternal. Live your life, not for this one, but for the next. Over and over and over again, we find this call to believers to live for what has eternal value. And Paul actually in chapter 5 talks about the life that is to come. He's describing our present bodies here on earth, the bodies that we're going to have in heaven someday. And he says that every believer has a longing for that next body, the resurrected one, the one that will be with Christ. And he says, but in the meantime, every Christian has a goal, a mission, an aim. According to verse 9, what is the aim of every Christian? Cindy, to be like Christ? Yeah, let's read the text together. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. There are a couple reasons listed that we should please Christ. Let's talk about the one listed in verse 10. What reason should we be aiming to please Christ according to verse 10? Yeah, Temi. Yeah, our actions are going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. I think that's motivation enough for us, right? How would you like to stand before Christ and it be revealed that your aim in life was not to please him, but yourself? Yikes. There's another reason, though. Verse 14 and 15 articulate it. What reason should our aim in life be to please him for? We're given another reason. Yeah, Cindy. Cindy. Okay, to glorify God. Uh, maybe use the text copy. He died for us. Yeah, we're told that the love of Christ controls us. We know that he died for us. Yes, this is the whole like thrust of the scriptures. I feel like we're revisiting this every couple of weeks, but we're just reminded again that Jesus did not die for us so that we can say, thanks, I'm going to keep doing what I want. We see the love of Christ Going to the cross, we'll look at the next question in just a second here, but um, Jesus' love in bearing our punishment, and we say, I can't do anything but live for you. So I realize question number three is a little personal. I'm not going to ask you to tell me what areas of your life that you need to be more intentional about in pleasing the Lord, but I hope this was thought-provoking. I hope that even in doing this exercise, you realized Every area of my life needs to be with pleasing the Lord in mind. Every decision I make has to factor in, does this please the Lord? So let's get really simple. What time should I go to bed tonight? Make a decision that pleases the Lord. Should I have another scoop of ice cream? Ask yourself, would this please the Lord? I think there are biblical principles and scriptures we can apply to even those simple questions and say, you know what? I think I know what would please the Lord here. My body's a temple. I have an obligation to tomorrow working as hard as I can, to maintaining myself, and I really want to please the Lord even in simple things like this. Should I watch this movie? Should I send this text? Should I, you name it, would it please the Lord? Second part of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're told some awesome truths about the gospel in particular. And according to verse 19, 
What happens to our trespasses when we are in Christ? Joanne? They're not counted against us. How awesome is that? We know our trespasses. We know how wicked and sinful we are. But in Christ, they're not counted against us. How does verse 21 describe what happened on the cross? Demi? Yeah. Jesus, the innocent one, on the cross, took our sins upon himself for the punishment that we deserved, and we get the righteousness of God in return if we just come to him. So I asked you then, as you meditate on those truths, to write down a couple sentences of praise for what Jesus has done for you. I hope that that encouraged uh, just some really reflective times talking about Jesus. We have, we have one minute left. I think that's not enough time to answer this last question here. Uh, the gist of it was that Paul was just really challenging us to consider our relationship to the world. He tells us not to be unequally yoked with believers. He makes all of these comparisons about how it's just inconceivable, inconceivable for Paul that someone who is a temple of the holy God would ever flirt with things that are worldly. He says, what accord does light and darkness have with one another, or Christ and Belial, or unrighteousness and righteousness? In the same way, a Christian should not be having this close association with the world. And the challenge then for us was to really evaluate some things in our life and determine how we need to create some distance between us and the world. It's 10.15. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Again, Lord, we need your word. We see that it has multiple applications to everyday life, particularly as we think about our relationship to the world and this mission that we have to please you in life. Help us, Lord, to really be serious about doubling down and making every decision with the goal to please you. Please just turn our hearts uh, towards that thought. Help us to be like Jesus as we are confronted with your glory as it is revealed to us in the word. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.